This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Hey, it's Nyla. I'm your host for this edition of the News Roundup. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly changing, and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. You can stay up to date with news by listening to your local NPR member station and visiting npr.org for all the latest. Thanks for listening and enjoyed the show. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Nyla Boodoo from Axios Today. And once again, it's time for the News Roundup. Arrested and arraigned, June 13th, 2023 will go down as a day in history, or as the former president prefers, infamy. Today we witness the most evil and heinous abuse of power in the history of our country. That claim had been challenged days earlier by his own attorney general, Bill Barr. He's not a victim here. Miami provided the backdrop for this week's main political drama, but there's been plenty of spectacle elsewhere. And to help us make sense of all that's been going on, we have three sharp and close observers of the news. My thanks this week go to Taylor Popolars, Washington correspondent for Spectrum News, Christian Hall, who covers national politics for Bloomberg, and Todd Zwillick. He's the deputy D.C. bureau chief for Vice News. He's also author of Breaking the Vote, newsletter on democracy indictments. Let's start, of course, in Miami. On Tuesday, Donald Trump became the first former president to face a judge on federal charges. In court, he pleaded not guilty to dozens of felony counts, accusing him of hoarding classified documents and refusing government demands to give them back. Taylor, what happened in Miami and what new did we find out about the charges and what they might mean for the former president? Well, just zooming out, the fact that any former U.S. president had to turn himself into a federal courthouse was stunning enough, as you said, the first time in history that that happened. And what we saw leading up to Donald Trump arriving at the courthouse was this 49-page indictment where the government basically alleged the president hoarded a bunch of documents in various places throughout his Florida resort, from a ballroom stage to a bathroom at Mar-a-Lago, and then resisted multiple efforts by the government to take those documents back. So we saw Donald Trump, you know, we didn't get many visuals of him as he was uh, arriving at this courthouse and going in. He didn't get a mugshot taken just because of the unique scenario that is a former president turning himself in on charges like this. But we know that he sat with his arms crossed during most of the proceeding, that he didn't look at the special counsel, Jack Smith, who had charged him with this because there were a handful of reporters allowed in the room, though no technology was allowed to accompany them there. And we saw some sketches. So we, we've learned that the government has a pretty detailed case against the former president, showing that on multiple occasions he was asked to basically say, hey, return these documents and then there won't be any issue. And for various reasons that the government is alleging, he decided not to and kind of coordinated with some of his closest advisors and aides in order to keep the documents there. So it was it was a stunning thing to play out. And as you mentioned, just unprecedented hasn't happened before. Donald Trump flew back to his home in New Jersey after the arraignment in Miami, and he spoke to his supporters who gathered in Bedminster on Tuesday evening. Threatening me with 400 years in prison for possessing my own presidential papers, which just about every other president has done, is one of the most outrageous and vicious legal theories ever put forward in an American court of law. The Espionage Act has been used to go after traitors and spies. It has nothing to do with a former president legally keeping his own documents. Todd, 
Now that the charges have been unsealed, what difference in any has this made to the level of support Trump has among the Republican Party and other lawmakers? Um, Yeah, I I think we should answer that question. Before we do, I think it's important to point out that I counted three false statements in that uh, clip that you played from Donald Trump, two false statements in the first sentence. Um, This case does not turn on the Presidential Records Act, and the Presidential Records Act does not uh, does not comment on whether uh, presidents have access to defense information, classified and top secret defense information, which is the basis of the first 31 counts of this indictment. Um, Donald Trump is not facing 400 years. That's the maximum if you like to calculate the 10 years maximum for the first 31 counts and the 20 years for obstruction and the rest of it could add up to 400 years. Um, That's not realistic in any way. The realistic sentence, if Donald Trump were found guilty across the board, um, would be something more along the lines of of maybe 17 years, maybe lower, maybe 15. There's a a detailed um, federal sentencing guideline table. Many of them have been published this week, and they're very useful and kind of fun if you're not familiar with this area of law. Now, in terms of Donald Trump's support, um, look, I, I think we've the news media has been over this. There's this dichotomy, right? In the immediate sense, in a Republican-based primary where Donald Trump has spent the last six years convincing the Republican base, the MAGA base, that he's a perennial victim and that they're perennial victims, this prosecution helps him because it reaffirms what he's been saying all along. The system is out to get him. He is blameless. Um, the justice system is captured by leftists who want to ruin um, who want to ruin Trump and his supporters. Um, so in that sense, that lie helps Donald Trump in the primary. In a general election, um, of course it doesn't help. And I think a lot of Republicans understand that. There, there's almost no scenario where if he wins the nomination, being under indictment, I think we're up to 71 felony counts now between Manhattan and the Southern District of Florida – By the time Donald Trump uh, gets into a general election, if he makes it there, um, the number of indictments could be well over 100 if you factor in what we expect to probably come from Fulton County in Georgia and maybe indictments in a federal federal indictment over Donald Trump's attempted coup. Does that help him in a general election where his favorability has never really cracked 42%? I can't see it. And that means in a general election, if Donald Trump is the nominee – Indictments notwithstanding, his only hope to win, aside from trying to steal it again, um, which may or may not work, is to disqualify his opponent, tear down an opponent, uh, an opponent, ostensibly Joe Biden, to try to make that person even less popular than he is. And that would make for a very ugly and uh, pretty gross 2024 campaign. As we talk about the campaign, one of his rivals for the GOP nomination is former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. He took part in a CNN town hall earlier this week, and he called Donald Trump a three-time loser. 2018, we lost the House. 2020, we lost the White House. We lost the United States Senate a couple of weeks later in 2021. And in 2022, we lost two more governorships, another Senate seat, and barely took the House of Representatives when Joe Biden had the most incompetent first two years I've ever seen in my life. Loser, loser. Loser. Christian, was that the sentiment we heard from other potential GOP nominees or candidates this weekend, this past week? 
Yeah, well, certainly not as strong. I think Chris Christie entering this race, he sees it as an opportunity to directly take on Trump in a way that the other candidates just can't. I mean, I think Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, Pence, they're all in an almost impossible situation. They have to compete against former President Donald Trump, but also not inflame Trump's base. Um, I think if you take a look at the polling, you see that Trump supporters are really sticking to him. They are really strongly um, for the former president. But I also think it's important to note that for a lot of Republican supporters, not maybe not a lot, there are a few Republican supporters who are willing to back away from Donald Trump. If you take a look at the 2022 midterms, you see that there were enough Republicans who said, I am tired with Trump's behavior, and it was enough for Senate Democrats to hold on to their majority. Um, If you take a look at 2020, Joe Biden was able to get enough support from Republicans more than Hillary Clinton in order to win. So I think that these candidates are really being placed in a difficult situation of taking on the former president, but that's not the case at all for Chris Christie. He sees his mission as going after the former president, and yeah, he's in a good position to do that. When we're talking about former President Trump's allies, one thing that we heard before the arraignment on Tuesday was a rhetoric of violence that was deployed by the former president and some of his allies. And there was some concern about the potential for violence, but that didn't happen. Christian, do we think the prosecution of January 6th insurrectionists perhaps played a role in the peaceful outcome of the arraignment on Tuesday? Absolutely. I mean, I think the Jan 6th prosecution's played a really big role in why we didn't see violence in Miami. Um, I think a lot of Trump supporters who were willing to engage in violence realized that, you know, a lot of the Jan 6 protesters, when they were in jail, President Trump didn't offer monetary support. Um, I also think that a lot of his supporters kind of felt left out on a limb. If you take a look at the Proud Boys, there were scores of Proud Boys who were charged ultimately and questioned by the Justice Department. Um, And there was nothing that Trump could do to help them out. So I think that's one thing. But I also think that Trump's tone before the arraignment in Miami was a little bit different than uh, Jan 6. You know, he wasn't, you know, in Miami before the arraignment saying fight like hell, which is what he told his supporters uh, before the Jan 6 attack. So I think that that also played a role. There was just a different tone this time um, than Jan 6. Todd, what stuck out to you about the tone of Tuesday? The tone of the arraignment? Yes. Well, I, I think it's important to expand on what Christian was just saying about the types of people who showed up to support Donald Trump. Uh, Vice News had reporters down there. We actually had uh, reporter Greg Walters in the arraignment too, so sitting just a couple of rows behind Trump. It had kind of a kind of a, a rock and roll show mentality. I think what's important here in terms of violence, first of all, we have to still look out for lone actors. The security experts tell you that's a major danger. And secondly, these events haven't had the planning and the run-up that January 6th had, where Trump was tweeting for weeks. What happens when he's on trial if he plans to convene people like he did for weeks and months on January 6th? That could be dangerous. We'll be back with more of the News Roundup after the short break. Coming up, we'll discuss the latest Supreme Court ruling and get into the economy. Stay with us. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? 
This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch, and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Let's get back to the conversation with these comments and questions we got from some of you. Michael says, in 2020, over 74 million voters chose to trust their safety and future to Donald Trump. Why would those same voters not trust him with presidential documents from his time in the White House? And Jay asks, why hasn't Judge Aileen Cannon recused herself from a trial where Donald Trump is the defendant? Has there ever been a criminal trial in our history where the defendant is the same person who gave the judge their job? Taylor, what's your response to that? There are ongoing questions and debates over whether Judge Cannon should be in the position that she's in right now. She was nominated by former President Trump back in 2020. She has a conservative history, a member of the Federalist Society, which is a conservative group connected to the courts. But what's interesting is she already kind of ruled in part in in this case last year. She ruled in favor of the former president and his team, allowing what was called a special master to come in and start reviewing the evidence that was collected by federal agents when they executed a search warrant on Mar-a-Lago, the former president's resort. What's interesting, and this gets a bit legal, but an appeals court stepped in and stopped that special master from reviewing the evidence. So the investigation as a whole was paused briefly because of Judge Cannon's ruling. But then this appeals court came in and said, no, 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 that seems you know, a bit inappropriate. And a lot of legal scholars and court watchers were very critical of Cannon's ruling for that, basically saying, wait, is she trying to help out, as the as the listener just alluded to, the, the president that gave her her job? She hasn't indicated yet that she's going to recuse. Right now, this case is in her purview, and these cases for federal judges are assigned at random. There's certainly a chance, even if she doesn't recuse, that the case could be moved to another judge and that it could basically be shifted. But for the time being, she's going to be in the spotlight because Trump nominated her and because of her kind of take on things when it came to that special master review early on. So it's going to be interesting as things start to play out because she's already ordered the attorneys to kind of get their ducks in a row, figure out the security clearances that we need. So we haven't heard a lot from her in terms of how she's going to handle the steps forward. But for what she's done so far with this case, she's been under a spotlight for it. Taylor, um, speaking of classified documents, a federal grand jury has indicted the Air National Guardsman who leaked dozens of classified national defense documents online. Can you remind us what charges Jack Teixeira is facing? Yes. So this grand jury that handed down these charges earlier this week, it's six charges under the Espionage Act, and it's the same section of the Espionage Act that former President Trump is also charged with. So it's pretty incredible when you think about a former president in his 70s and then a 21-year-old Air National Guardsman being charged with the same thing. So there's just a lot of conversations right now in Washington and nationally about how classified information is being handled. What's interesting about this Teixeira case is that he is accused of not only retaining classified defense information, including about the war in Ukraine, but then sharing those documents on the social media site Discord with a small small group of people who in various reports, including in the Washington Post, they've alleged that he was basically showing off and trying to show them, hey, look at the information I have access to because of my security clearance. I want to clue you in on everything. Not that he was necessarily acting as a whistleblower of sorts, but the government is saying that he was essentially trying to show off, you know, the what he had approval to see. And now he's facing these very serious charges. He's also faces a few other charges that he's already pleaded guilty to. But the fact that the Espionage Act has now been invoked by this grand jury is a pretty significant step forward in this case. 
Let's move to the Supreme Court. On Thursday, the Supreme Court upheld the 1978 Indian Child Welfare Act, known as ICWA. Congress passed ICWA to ensure tribal governments have jurisdiction over the fostering and adoption of Native children. It gives preference to Native American families or relatives of the child over non-Native families. Todd, can you remind us why this law was challenged? Yeah, and and it's interesting when you read the ruling, Justice Amy Coney Barrett, who wrote for the majority, the 7-2 majority that upheld ICWA in this case, she flat out said, it's complicated. If you want to know more, read this long ruling. The bottom line, we're rejecting all these claims and upholding the law. So when when the Supreme Court justice warns you how complicated it is, um, you know, get comfortable and and read on. Um, the, the complicated history of this case has to do really with challenges to Indian sovereignty in this country. And um, conservative uh, challenges to the fact that ICWA, in performing its very important role, as you said, in protecting not only Indian sovereignty and Native American sovereignty, but protecting the integrity of Native American communities and families. When Native American children need foster care or adoption, in this area that we're talking about, the law function to try to keep those children in Native communities with Native families, um, not only because of uh, the cultural importance of that, but because of their special status over the law. And when it comes to the law, I think, and you saw this in Clarence Thomas's dissent, one of the big conservative gripes with ICWA is um, that in family court, ICWA can take primacy over the state in state law. How does that operate? Look, an adoption case, a foster case, usually state law has primacy there. Uh, Usually the state law governs how adoptions and foster care work in that state. This is a federal law meant to, like we said, protect uh, Native American communities and their sovereignty. And conservatives really don't like the fact that this federal law in family court is preempting state law. In addition to the fact that the advocates will tell you that a lot of conservatives just want to undermine uh, Native American sovereignty in the first place and have tried to do so for more than a century. Um, that's their take on it. So I, I think um, I think that's the origin of the case. And again, coming back to Amy Coney Barrett, you can look at issues of sovereignty. You can look at issues of race. You can look at issues of the Tenth Amendment. They're all at play here. And Amy Coney Barrett said, it's complicated. We're upholding the law. Well, and also, you know, I I was speaking to a few indigenous leaders and they were saying that this is a huge win, not only for child welfare, but also indigenous sovereignty. Um, I was speaking to a social worker and she was telling me that when she heard the news, she grabbed her own children and she gave them a hug because she understands how this case is really important in, you know, keeping sibling groups together, um, allowing children to immerse in their own culture and finding value in that. So uh, indigenous leaders are elated by this decision. Thanks, Christian. Next, a battle here in Washington over Department of Justice nominees. On Tuesday, Ohio Senator J.D. Vance said he's going to put a procedural hold on nominees for the DOJ. The Republican said he's protesting the prosecution of former President Donald Trump. I think that we have to grind this department to a halt until Merrick Garland promises to do his job and stop going after his political opponents. Taylor, one senator has the power to hold up all these nominees. 
They do. And that's something people may not realize. It's part of what makes the Senate such a unique body because there's only 100 senators, but they all either have to act together to progress on most things, or one of them can hit pause and say, I'm frustrated with this, or I disagree with this. Let's debate it more. Let's bring it back to committee, et cetera, et cetera. Senator Vance is a freshman senator who's only been in office since January, but he's very quickly tried to mark his territory in being one of the biggest defenders of former President Donald Trump. Vance is in the Senate in large part because Trump chose to endorse him in a very competitive primary in Ohio last year. And Vance has basically been repaying Trump for that ever since because he received a lot of financial support from Trump and his allies, as well as rallies from Trump in Ohio. So it, it goes on and on. And as Trump continues, as, as Todd and Christian have outlined, as Trump has continued kind of saying the Department of Justice and the federal government at large is being weaponized against conservatives, you're seeing Trump's key allies on Capitol Hill try to respond in some way. What's interesting about what Vance is doing is that it doesn't hold up every nomination that the Department of Justice is putting forward before the Senate. He, for example, his office said that U.S. Marshall nominees would be exempted. There's also an interesting case in Ohio. President Biden just nominated a U.S. attorney to represent the Northern District of Ohio there. And you have to wonder, is Vance going to block that person from representing part of his state? His office has not yet told me whether or not that person will qualify under this. But Vance is hoping that this kind of is a show that at least some Republicans in the Senate are standing by Trump. It's similar to what Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville is doing with certain military promotions. Motion, uh, nominations that have to go through the Senate. But it's also worth noting that a lot of these DOJ nominees particularly already had to be voted on by the Senate because there wasn't always unanimous agreement over them. So it's not necessarily going to stop the Department of Justice in its tracks. It's not going to stop functioning, but it's a reminder of what, what, what one senator can do if they want to make a point about something. So that's a Senate. Let's talk about the House. On Wednesday, 20 House Republicans joined Democrats to block a resolution that would censure Representative Adam Schiff, a Democrat from California. Florida Republican Representative Anna Paulina Luna spearheaded the measure to censor Schiff, and it was backed by GOP leadership. Todd, can you tell us why some Republicans were trying to censure Adam Schiff in the first place? Well, Adam Schiff is one of the favorite, among many, one of the favorite boogeymen uh, of the MAGA right. Um, He was a leader um, in the impeachment of Donald Trump, especially the first impeachment, the one where Trump uh, threatened Ukraine with uh, withholding military aid unless they did Donald Trump political favors by investigating Joe Biden. Donald Trump was impeached for that, although he was acquitted. by the Senate, Adam Schiff was a leader in um, a leader in that effort. As a lot of people remember, he's on TV a lot. He's pretty plain spoken about um, about uh, Donald Trump's depredations, and he's a former prosecutor. So um, <laughs> therein explains the antipathy. Um, in addition to the fact that the, the one statement that the right, uh, especially Republicans in the House, drilled down on about Adam Schiff is that um, he accused Donald Trump of collusion with Russia. Um, in the run-up to the 2016 election, which was a statement that wasn't affirmed by the Mueller report. Now, there's a ton of obfuscation when it comes to this issue. Let's just make it very brief and clear. The Mueller report and the Senate Intelligence Committee investigation of the 2016 election, led by a Republican chairman, uh, Richard Burr of North Carolina, found that Russia intervened in the 2016 election. The Trump campaign knew about it and welcomed the help and that uh, Trump's campaign manager, Paul Manafort, shared detailed campaign insider information with a Russian intelligence operative named Konstantin Kalimnik. Now, 
if you use the word collusion to describe that, it's legally there isn't really a term for collusion, and Robert Mueller didn't find that. Um, rhetorically and conceptually, Adam Schiff says, well, if that's not collusion, I don't know what is. And therein lies the debate. Republicans um, raise money off of Adam Schiff. He's a boogeyman. They wanted to fine him $16 million, which is why some Republicans bolted from this uh, censure resolution. And Congresswoman Luna says she's coming back next week with another censure, censure motion to go after Adam Schiff that won't have the $16 million fine. And we'll see if um, Republicans try to make some news headlines out of him. Christian, what's the significance of the of 20 Republican representatives breaking with their party to block that censure? I mean, it's really a huge deal. You don't really see that type of bipartisanship uh, right now these days. It's really hard. I mean, I just think about I look at President Joe Biden and ahead of 2024, he's really in a difficult position because he has to find a way to bring together these two parties on so many charged topics. I mean, I was just thinking about uh, President, Bi- President Biden, his silence on like the DOJ right now. I think he doesn't really talk about it a lot because, one, he doesn't want to seem that he's being biased and he wants this institution to kind of operate on its own. But I also think that he's hoping that voters will be tired of the political infighting that's going on in Washington, tired of Trump's behavior. Um, So yeah, it's really surprising to see that this many Republicans are going to sign on to work with Democrats. Let's turn to the economy. On Wednesday, Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell said interest rates won't be increasing yet. Another hike could be coming, though. Inflation is the lowest it's been in two years. It's still above the banks, the central bank's 2% target. Taylor, why was this decision on Wednesday or this announcement on Wednesday not to raise rates significant? It was significant, first off, because the the Federal Reserve had raised rates 10 times in a row throughout the last year. So this is the first break after almost a dozen consistent increases, which was pretty unprecedented. And we heard from Jerome Powell, the Federal Reserve chair on Wednesday. He, in essence, said that things are stable enough right now that they didn't see the need to trigger another raise, but that it could happen you know, next month if, if needed. Because as you pointed out, inflation still is higher. It's around 4%, which is above kind of the the standard, the comfortable range, but it's not at 9% where it was last year. And so the Federal Reserve is at this interesting point because in certain ways, when you look at kind of the economy, if you write it all down on paper, you see that employment numbers are really strong and unemployment is really low. You're even seeing prices for things like gas and groceries drop, but then people are still paying a bit more for various other things because inflation remains high, but it's not as bad as it was. So the Federal Reserve is trying to figure out how much longer to keep these rate increases in place without triggering a recession and without basically spooking the economy. And right now, Jerome Powell said, we're good, you know, for the month of June, we'll we'll revisit this in July. Todd, um, quickly, does this, is this good news for the economy then in terms of we're thinking about the state of the economy? Well, um, if not raising rates is good news if you're looking to borrow. So many fewer people are are looking to borrow at the moment. Um, I mean, we're all looking toward whether there's going to be a soft landing, right? This tension between really good job numbers and full employment and interest rates. And that's Jerome Powell and the Fed's job is to find the sweet spot between these two things. We're rounding up the week's biggest news. Plenty more still ahead. We'll be back after this short break. This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. 
The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research. On, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Let's get back to the news roundup and turn now to beer. Bud Light is no longer the nation's top-selling beer. According to a data analytics company, the brand sales sales fell to 7% of market share in the four weeks that ended June 3rd. That's according to the consulting firm Bump Williams that left Modelo to take the top spot. This decline in sales comes after a conservative-led boycott of Bud Light's partnership with transgender influencer Dylan Mulvaney. Taylor, can you remind us why this story has attracted so much attention? It's the the latest chapter of the ongoing culture wars that, especially in conservative media and from conservative politicians who often find themselves appearing on those conservative media outlets they like to talk about, you're, you're basically seeing certain celebrities and political leaders outraged that Bud Light was doing business with Dylan Mulvaney, who has become, as you mentioned, this transgender icon of sorts and has been embraced by a lot of, a lot of people and groups and outlets because She's been so outspoken kind of about her journey. And what you see, at least on the congressional front, is you see lawmakers not only in appearances on podcasts or on TV programs talking about boycotting Bud Light and expressing concern about the the culture associated with Bud Light and why the company is willing to do business with a transgender activist. You're then seeing talk about should Congress be either investigating this or should there be legislative responses to it? And it is something that if you turn on Fox News or you turn on on other conservative programs you see talk, being talked about all the time. We even just saw, because it is Pride Month, the White House White House held a Pride celebration, uh, one of many, and various conservatives took issue with the fact that the Pride flag was flown at the White House. So it, it's kind of the latest chapter in the culture wars, and we're seeing more and more conversations, especially about transgender, just, you know, how it's talked about in schools, how, what exposure children should have to conversations about it. And both in state legislatures and at the congressional level, you're seeing a lot of members try to speak out and express outrage over it. There's also kind of a connection to this boycott culture, which is ironic because if you remember when Donald Trump was in office, he often decried cancel culture and, and talked about how no one wanted to do business with him anymore before he became, before he got into politics because he weighed in on various issues. But we talked about Ohio Senator J.D. Vance before. He recently said that he wouldn't be shopping at Target for now because they had a display for Pride Month. So it's this interesting balancing act that conservatives are playing in terms of expressing outrage about certain cultural topics, but then coming to the defense kind of when it's a topic they might agree with more. Right. Christian, we've talked a lot on this show about the momentum in many state legislators to pass anti-trans legislation. But To Taylor's point about the politics and the culture war, how much pressure is this putting on corporate America right now? Yeah, I mean, I think Taylor made some really good points. Uh, It's really placing companies in a very difficult position. I mean, traditionally, companies would delve into these topics because it could create good press. It gave companies an opportunity to really connect with its consumer. Um, But now it's really difficult. 
I mean, you see politicians have used these instances uh, to build up, you know, their own profiles, be able to really connect with their voters. It really places uh, companies in a very difficult position. Todd, do we know if Bud Light's drop in sales is actually connected to the backlash? I think it is. I mean, I, I don't, I confess I don't know enough about uh, the economy or the beer business <laughs> to know if their sales would have been dropping anyway, like, you know, on the basis of beer quality, perhaps I, I really don't know. But I, I think the political salience of this is very telling. Um, look, look, I don't think that there's a balancing act that conservatives are playing with their opposition to cancel culture. I, I, think, I think the word for it is hypocrisy. Uh, by these politicians. I think that uh, decrying cancel culture serves you when it serves you. And when you want to go after a company or some other institution for doing something that you don't like, maybe going after Disney for uh, protesting anti-gay, anti-trans laws in Florida, or going after Target or Bud Light, then then that's just fine. Um, Do- Donald Trump, I hate to keep bringing this back to Trump. We tend to This tends to happen all the time, but he really did say something important this past week on, on this issue. He was talking to a crowd in North Carolina. And he's in this way that Donald Trump can be so honest sometimes. Sometimes he can really be honest and transparent. It's one of the very refreshing things about him. And I'm paraphrasing. He said, gee, you know, um, I talk about taxes and nobody cares. Republicans used to love to talk about taxes, but boy, you say transgender and people just go nuts. What an issue. Five years ago, you didn't hear anything about it. I mean, I think that says it all. I think Donald Trump laid out exactly what the politics of this looks like on the right. Aside from the politics, which I confess I'm obsessed with too, I think that the issue of uh, trans people and especially trans children is incredibly important. 20 states, Republican-led states, have now restricted or outlawed gender-affirming care on some level for trans children. Um, And uh, there's been some great reporting around this uh, in the past couple of weeks. This is in contravention to all of the professional advice of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Uh, the American Psychiatric Association, other professional organizations, and it is causing these children to suffer. Some trans families have made it clear, both um, in the pages of Vice News and in many other places, that they are considering leaving the states that they live in because they don't feel safe there, they don't feel like their children have a future there, and they're contemplating moving to other parts of the country or in some cases out of the country. And I think that says a lot. Let's stay with just this conservative news topic for a minute and talk about Fox News, because after Fox News fired Tucker Carlson in April, the primetime host took his talents to Twitter. He launched a video series that Fox now says violates his contract. They've sent him a cease and desist letter. Christian, Fox fired Tucker Carlson. So why are why are they saying his Twitter show violates their contract? You know, I mean. Tucker Carlson is still an employee of Fox News, and that's what this whole fight is about. I mean, they are asking him to stop posting videos to Twitter because it's escalating the dispute between the network and uh, Carlson himself, but he's continuing to speak publicly. Uh, I think it's really difficult for Fox because, as I said, I mean, he's still an employee of Fox News, and his contract isn't up until twenty the end of 2024. Um, so it's a really challenging position. Taylor, what have we heard from Tucker Carlson about a response to this? 
He, so far in these, I think he's put out three or four episodes of his new Twitter show where it's essentially a shortened version of what was his Fox hour-long show. It's more of a 10 or 15-minute monologue, if you will. And he and his legal team have argued that this he's protected by the First Amendment and freedom of speech in order to post on Twitter and, and do what he wants. Fox is also arguing, well, wait, didn't you reach an agreement with Twitter CEO Elon Musk? And is there kind of a monetary aspect to it there that could be a bit more formal than just posting something on social media, but you're seeing Carlson not be afraid of, of even poking kind of the bear that Fox is. He His most recent episode, uh, there was a lower third on Fox News the night that Trump was speaking in Bedminster after he turned himself in in court in Miami, and President Biden was next to him on the screen because he was speaking at the White House, and there was briefly what's called a chyron on the bottom of the screen where Fox was calling President Biden a wannabe dictator, and Fox has since said, oh, we're taking care of that. It was quickly addressed and all of that. But Tucker labeled his latest episode on Twitter, wannabe dictator, and talked more about it. So he's not afraid to kind of poke that bear and discuss maybe some drama within Fox News as this legal battle is playing out. And it's really just a fascinating kind of thing to see because you have to remember he was their top star and oftentimes their highest rated star who then got abruptly fired. And now we have this legal back and forth. Changes are coming to another household TV program. Wheel of Fortune is looking for a new host. Pat Sajak announced he's stepping down at the end of this season. He has hosted Wheel of Fortune since 1981. This week, we learn more about what happened to Olympian Tori Bowie. The track and field star was found dead in a home last month. According to an autopsy released by the Orange County Medical Examiner's Office in Florida, Bowie died from complications during childbirth. The autopsy report lists preeclampsia and respiratory issues as possible causes of death. She was 32 years old. Todd, Bowie won a full set of medals at the 2016 Olympics in Rio. How has the track and field world responded to her death? What a, what a tragic thing to happen to any woman in America. And it's bewildering, right, when it's a star athlete, an elite athlete, just 32 years old, um, some of Tori's track partners um, and co-competitors, you know, obviously all over social media, um, following up on the tragedy. And ma- many have pointed out, I think, um, what this says about um, the health status of black women in America. And I think it's, a, it's, it's just a critical and great time to talk about it. Um, the United States has a higher maternal mortality rate than any developed country in the entire world. And in this country, the maternal mortality rate for black women is three times higher than it is for white women. And I I think with all of the debate in this country going on, and it's a very hot debate culturally, we know this, around, you know, critical race theory and classroom discussions of race and white children and their parents feeling uncomfortable over discussions of slavery or the Civil War or the history of race in this country. I think that this, in many senses, is what people mean when they talk about systemic racism. All right, forget about for a second the debates over CRT and who invented it and does it belong in schools. I think that this, to many people, is what they mean when they talk about systemic racism. It's a three times higher rate of maternal 
mortality for black women in this country. And that's because of uh, lower access to care, lower resources, lower access to education, lower access to emergency medical care. All of those things combined in a very real, very medical, very practical and uh, very tragic way. We recently talked about the rising rates of maternal mortality among black women with Dr. Jamila Parrott. We see almost a third of all maternal mortalities occurring in um, the, the up to one year postpartum. And so um, that risk can, can shift for many communities, but typically it's in the latter part of pregnancy. And I actually heard Dr. Kamara Jones describe it perfectly when we think about how and why this risk impacts black women disparately as compared to other communities. And she was talking about this in the context of infections for COVID-19. And she said, we are more affected because we are less protected. And I think that that is absolutely similarly true when we talk about the risk of maternal mortality for black women throughout pregnancy, but in particular during the postpartum period. Todd, to your point, track and field Olympian Allison Felix, Bowie's teammate, spoke up about her emergency C-section due to preeclampsia back in 2019. And as we were saying, we're talking about Olympic athletes here. Christian, did you want to weigh in? Well, yeah, I was just going to actually mention that Allison Felix, I mean, she talked about her own struggles with this and how, you know, she wasn't sure that she was going to make it there. There's definitely a problem here that she was uh, talking about and that we have to address this uh, systemic racism. Taylor, you know, as we've spent this hour talking about all of these different sort of talking points and people, what people are talking about on the campaign trail, do we expect that this will be, do do you think we'll see any presidential candidates talking about America's maternal mortality crisis? It'll be interesting to see if South Carolina Senator Tim Scott weighs in. He, he's obviously a black man. He's one of the, the few black senators, and especially as a black Republican, he's kind of a rare commodity in Washington. I, I think all the time I've covered the Congressional Black Caucus closely over the last five years and throughout the pandemic, talking about COVID specifically, but then this topic with maternal mortality, they're often shouting, they feel like into a void, saying that it's not being covered enough, it's not being talked about enough, and we're not accepting the reality that when a story like this pops up, it's in the headlines for a week or two, but then the conversation shrinks about it. So it, it will be interesting. I, I would be surprised, honestly, for the presidential race, just with so much going on, including the, the top Republican candidate potentially facing jail time over, over handling classified documents, if this topic kind of stays, you know, in the news cycle. But to see if Tim Scott, he he talks all the time about his upbringing and, and how, you know, his, his mother played such a substantial part in his life. He might feel a desire to weigh in on that. You also have the likes of Nikki Haley, who's a mom herself. So it'll be interesting to see if they continue to talk about it. But I can't imagine months from now it will con- it will be as much of a headline as it is right now. That's Taylor Popolars, Washington correspondent for Spectrum News, Christian Hall, who covers national politics for Bloomberg News. Also with us, Todd Zwillick. He's the deputy D.C. bureau chief for Vice News. He's also the author of the Breaking the Vote newsletter on democracy and indictments. You can sign up at vice.com slash breaking the vote. Before we head to the global edition of the News Roundup, we remember novelist Cormac McCarthy. McCarthy passed away Tuesday at his home in Santa Fe, New Mexico. The Rhode Island native's first book, The Orchard Keeper, was published in 1965. He wrote 12 novels throughout his career, each cementing his status as one of America's most prominent authors. His stories were often dark, 
violent, and male-dominated, and they were mostly inspired by the Southwest. That includes the 1992 novel All the Pretty Horses, which won the National Book Award. And while a few of his works were transferred to the big screen, McCarthy's 2005 No Country for Old Men stood out. Its 2007 film adaptation won four Academy Awards, including Best Picture in 2008. The crime you see now, it's hard to even take its measure. It's not that I'm afraid of it. I always knew you had to be willing to die to even do this job. But I don't want to push my chips forward and go out and meet something I don't understand. A man would have to put his soul at hazard. He'd have to say, okay. In 2007, he won the Pulitzer Prize for the post-apocalyptic The Road, which many regard as his masterpiece. Cormac McCarthy was 89. biggest news from around the world. We'll discuss the European Union's move to regulate the usage of artificial intelligence in the meeting between NATO chief Jens Stoltenberg and President Joe Biden this week. Stay with us. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Integrative Therapeutics, with vitamins and supplements previously available only through practitioners, including Cortisol Manager. Unlock your best self with clinician-curated supplements from Integrative Therapeutics, now on Amazon. This message comes from NPR sponsor Made in Cookware. Did you know that many popular dishes in Tom Colicchio's craft restaurant are made in Made in Cookware? Made in supplies chefs with high-end cookware because Made in makes exactly what demanding chefs look for. When you level up your cooking, remember what great dishes on menus worldwide have in common. They're made in Maiden. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from the 18th until the 27th. Visit MaidenCookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N Cookware.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Noom. Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, helps you build new habits for a healthier lifestyle. Check out The Noom Kitchen for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the American Cancer Society. By the end of this message, two people will be told they have cancer. Yes, every 15 seconds, someone is diagnosed with cancer. But by the end of this message, you could do something about it with your donation. A gift of any amount to the American Cancer Society can help those facing cancer get free rides to care or a free place to stay closer to treatment. Donate today at cancer.org. Let's turn now to all the busy stories from around the globe. Let's jump in. My guest today, Saleha Mosin, is senior Washington correspondent at Bloomberg News. Thanks for being here, Saleha. Hi. Joyce Cottam is senior news editor at Al Monitor. Welcome back, Joyce. Hey, Naila. And here with me in studio, Jack Detch is national security correspondent at Foreign Policy. It's always good to have you, Jack. Nice to be here, Naila. Let's start with a story out of Greece. Today is the third day of a search for survivors of what may be one of the Mediterranean's worst boat disasters. So far, Greek authorities have confirmed 78 deaths and 104 survivors after a fishing boat sank on the way from Libya to Italy. Hundreds may have drowned. It's unclear how many people were on the boat, but estimates range up to 750, including up to 100 children. 
Joyce, can you just share with us what we know about this, as well as the context of how deadly boat crossings have been this year? Yeah, truly, Naila, it's a heartbreaking uh, situation. Uh, It's one of the deadliest uh, in migrant uh, crisis since uh, the 2015. uh, These boat uh, transfers have uh, started. What we know so far is actually the the boat had up to 750 people, and it uh, uh, sank off the Greek coast on Wednesday around 2.30 a.m. local uh, local time. Uh, out of the uh, 104 that were rescued, none, none were wearing life, uh, life vests. Uh, uh, we also know among those missing still are as many as 100 uh, children. Uh, the water in that area of the Mediterranean is as deep as uh, 1,300 uh, feet. Uh, so it's this is uh, this is really a reminder that the migrant disaster is getting only worse for Europe, as the desperation in neighboring uh, across Mediterranean countries such as uh, Egypt and now actually Sudan, uh, Libya, uh, Syria uh, gets worse. Uh, you mentioned the UN. Uh, we know that this year, actually, the numbers have doubled of uh, migrants who uh, have arrived uh, to the Mediter- uh, to Europe from the Mediterranean region. Uh, the number the UN estimates now is above uh, 36,000, uh, that nearly uh, twice uh, the number uh, from, uh, from uh, last year. Uh, Nine Egyptian smugglers have been arrested uh, by uh, by Greece, but as if as far as a long term uh, solution that addresses both problems on each side, we are nowhere near that uh, at the moment. Right, and I want to get into some of those details that you brought up, Saleha. Can I just ask? There's been some reports about whether or not this boat rebuffed offers of help. Do we know anything more about that? You know, there's not a lot more about that. There is a lot of news out there generally about how there are several new geopolitical events that are triggering huge displacement of people. um, And that does include the Greek boat tragedy. Right. And all of this does coincide with a report out this week um, from UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, reporting that almost 110 million people across the globe have had to flee their homes. It's about one out of every 74 people on the planet. Uh, Salehi, I know Joyce was mentioning some of this. Can you explain a little bit more about why more people are being displaced now than ever? Yeah, Nyla, the figures were really shocking. The numbers that you just told us are a record high um, after one of the biggest increases that the UN's refugee agency has ever recorded, another 19 million over just one year. Um, The reason that there are several reasons behind this, a couple of very big geopolitical events that have triggered this huge refugee uh, status amongst several nations. There's the obvious one, the war in Ukraine. Uh, The other one is that there's now more accurate estimates for how many refugees emerged after the U.S. withdrew from Afghanistan in 2021. There's also fighting in Sudan. And put all of this together, there's actually no sign right now that the trend here is going to slow. Um, What a lot of uh, folks at the U.N. are saying is that the world's, um, you know, sort of rush to conflict and dragging their heels to find more peaceful solutions uh, is contributing to 
the refugee status of one in 75 people on the planet. UNHCR Commissioner Filippo Grandi spoke to Canadian media about this this week. The Refugee Convention, 1951, the Geneva Convention, says refugees are an international responsibility. They've lost the protection of their state. They are the responsibility of everybody. That responsibility must be shared. And hosting is a big part of that sharing. The others should help with resources. Jack, to that point of hosting, one of the most interesting notes to me about this report is that headlines about migrants are often Um, you know, about the horrific tragedy we were just talking about. That's often what people see in the news. But according to the report, more than 75 percent of refugees or displaced people aren't hosted by the West, but they are hosted by low and middle income nations. Can you explain more about why that is? Yeah, let's dive more into the numbers, Nyla, because they're pretty staggering. Uh, According to the U.N., more than half of refugees under their protection have fled from Syria, Ukraine and Afghanistan alone. That's more than 18 million people. Most of them are fleeing to countries like Turkey, Iran, Colombia, Germany and Pakistan. Now, only one of those countries on that list has a really solid social safety net. Most of them have limited or no social safety net. Uh, And that doesn't even mention, of course, refugees fleeing from Syria to Jordan and and Lebanon, places that are economically devastated, Uh, middle and low income countries in Eastern Europe that are hosting Ukrainian refugees, the Poland, Slovakias and Romanians of, of the world. And of course, the Afghan the Afghani's who are fleeing to Pakistan, uh, some of them eligible actually to receive American visas, but can't get out uh, because there aren't the U.S. diplomats coming in, and Pakistan is blocking American diplomats from holding interviews. So, the longer these conflicts go on, the more folks add up, uh, the more stuck we're going to be in this situation. Axios spoke to UNHCR spokesperson Catherine Mahoney this week. She said, quote, the fundamental right to seek asylum is under threat in some places. Joyce, when we think about that statement, what policies and politics are making it harder to resettle refugees apart from the logistical things Jack was just expressing? I mean, it's an important conversation. And if you look at what's happening, for example, with Syria, many of the countries, including Turkey, including Lebanon, would like to repatriate uh, Syrian uh, refugees if if they agree uh, to it. The problem you have is the Assad government in Syria is not uh, agreeing uh, to that. They don't want some of uh, these people to uh, uh, to come back. And that's also a large driving uh, the we saw, you know, Saudi Arabia host Assad at the Arab League summit. That's largely driven by the refugee uh, uh, crisis. Another problem we have is, of course, uh, the the conflict in Sudan uh, that uh, started in uh, in April, and so far, hundred thousand refugees have have uh, went have gone from Sudan to Egypt. Diplomatically, we don't have a. Uh, aggressive diplomatic approach, whether regionally, uh, whether internationally, to uh, solve uh, this, uh, th- these issues. And instead, we're dealing with the aftermath. I know a European delegation was uh, in Tunisia uh, last week trying to, to look at short-term fixes, but as far as long-term uh, fixes, as far as settlements to these conflicts, we're nowhere near there. Right. Uh, As we talk about this, I think it's important to just shift to Ukraine because that's part of this conversation as well. Uh, On Wednesday, fierce fighting took place in the southern city of Odessa. A Russian airstrike killed at least three people. 
This is, of course, happening as Ukraine moves forward with its counteroffensive in the southern Zaporizhia region. Ukrainian forces are attempting to reclaim territory. Jack, what have the Ukrainians said about the progress they've made so far on this counteroffensive? Well, they're they're very clear. This is not a knockout punch yet. And, and the plan is very deliberate. It's for Ukraine to make these probing attacks against Russian units along that 700-mile-long line uh, and basically force the Kremlin to make the tough decision to commit more reserves so Ukraine can then match those reserves with Western-trained forces, with tanks, with artilleries, uh, with the military of its own. The problem that you see, of course, with that approach – uh, is that it's going to be very difficult to punch a hole because during this time that the Ukrainians have been training, that they've been getting more weapons, uh, the Russians have been building these these multi-echelon defenses that are popping up on satellite imagery, these ditches, these anti-tank dragon teeth that can stop Bradleys in their tracks, uh, barbed wire and, and concrete, uh, over a thousand fortifications in Zaporizhia alone, which is where Ukraine really wants to make their main thrust of the offensive. And Putin, of course, readying his own counterpunch. Uh, we saw, of course, of course, the Odessa strikes, uh, strikes in Kiev overnight. Uh, and he made a speech today in St. Petersburg basically saying Ukraine is at the end of its rope when it comes to self-made military equipment, basically daring the West to send more military aid. Uh, but I think the message is clear. No knockout punch yet. We're, we're readying. We're trying to find and fix and, and putting more pressure on Western policymakers in the Biden administration to really fill up the kitty with more aid. On Tuesday, President Biden and NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg met at the White House where they discussed support for Ukraine. It's our security interest to support uh, Ukraine. Uh, and that's exactly what we'll do when we meet uh, all the NATO leaders at the summit in Vilnius uh, next month, where we agree to sustain and step up our support to Ukraine, further strengthen our uh, deterrence and defense, including by a new commitment uh, to invest more in defense. And I expect allies to agree that 2% of GDP for defense uh, uh, has to be a minimum of what allies have to invest uh, in our shared security. Also on the agenda was the upcoming vacancy of NATO's leader as Stoltenberg prepares to step down. Joyce, Stoltenberg floated that he may extend his term, which has garnered support from alliance members. But this isn't the first time his time has been extended. How difficult is it to fill this job? Yes, a great question, uh, Naila. It appears that Stoltenberg may not have a choice in this one. While he said he he intends to leave, he has not ruled out uh, staying. Uh, The problem we're seeing is within NATO, there is an ongoing disagreement on who would come uh, next. There is no uh, unanimity among NATO members on uh, around one candidate. So uh, in a nutshell, we have two uh, names that have been floated as uh, possible uh, replacement for uh, Stoltenberg. That's uh, former uh, Danish Prime Minister uh, Frederskin and former UK Defence Minister uh, uh, Ben Wallace. So in these two cases, there is no agreement among the big players in NATO uh, on, on any of them. For example, Germany and France are supporting uh, the former uh, uh, Danish uh, Prime Minister, who would actually be the first female uh, uh, Secretary General of NATO if she were to uh, to uh, get the post. But the U.S. is not as uh, enthusiastic about her uh, nomination, uh, nor are uh, Eastern European uh, countries. Uh, So uh, at the same time, Washington has not made a decision of uh, who it 
it wants for uh, for this position. All in all, uh, this favors an extension of uh, Stoltenberg uh, term uh, as you know a sign of continuity. The policies on Ukraine, uh, and you know when October comes, but uh, we'll 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 know more at the upcoming summit on July 11 and 12. Uh, in Lithuania on, uh, you know, whether this is definitely uh, the preference going forward. Jack, from a practical standpoint, what is the job of the Secretary General? And, and I assume this is so much more important now because of the war. Totally. The Secretary General is kind of a consensus builder. You're trying to get 31 allies, potentially 32 if Sweden joins the alliance on board with supporting the Ukrainians uh, and sort of at an acceptable level of support, right? It's it's important to note that NATO, despite being supportive of the Ukrainians in rhetoric, has never put the NATO flag on training missions, on arming and equipping. Uh, and of course, there are folks in Eastern Europe who'd like to see them go farther. I think Joyce hit on a lot of the problems you've had with selecting a successor to Stoltenberg. I was sitting at the bar at the Munich Security Conference a few months ago talking to NATO officials, and what they said is there's a long checklist of something they like from a successor. They'd like a head of state. They'd like someone from an emerging NATO state, potentially Eastern or Southern Europe, and they'd like the candidate to be female. Um, Mette Fredriksson, of course, of Denmark hits a lot of those boxes. Uh, another candidate that was very strong in the early going was Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte. He's expressed no interest in the job. So I think we may sort of see a situation like we saw when Stoltenberg first emerged nine years ago, which was Obama and Merkel getting together in sort of the proverbial smoke-filled room, although I don't think they were smoking, uh, and really hashing this out. But the the U.S. really becomes a kingmaker late in the game. The problem is their preferred candidate, Christian Freeland of, of Canada, has really been sunk in by the discord leaks and Canada saying they're not getting to 2% of defense spending anytime soon. Mm. Let's move to tech news. Lawmakers in the European Union are cracking down on potentially dangerous uses of artificial intelligence. On Wednesday, the European Parliament approved the EU AI Act. It is about change. It is about understanding that we cannot afford to remain stagnant and about not being afraid of the future. Second, going forward, we are going to need constant, clear boundaries and limits to artificial intelligence. And here there is one thing that we will not compromise on. Anytime technology advances, it must go hand in hand with our fundamental rights and democratic values. That was Roberta Metzola, the president of the European Parliament. Saleha, what kind of uses of AI does this act protect against? This has been a really interesting development, Nyla. What we're seeing here is the first government in the world to start setting rules on how companies can use AI. So once that's implemented, anyone who creates or disseminates AI systems in the EU, and that includes companies that are based outside the EU but operating systems inside the bloc, those companies will have to deal with regulations to protect from certain risks of real-time facial recognition systems in public places. Also, policing tools that kind of predict what behavior should be expecting, and also social scoring systems that we've seen in China, where people are given a health score based on their social behavior. So some of the applications from the AI industry will be deemed as high risk. And that means systems that are used to influence voters during elections 
or social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, where they have more than 45 million users, they will all be facing really tight restrictions. The European Union's sweeping measure sits in stark contrast to the U.S., where efforts to regulate AI have stalled in Congress. Joyce, how does this latest move by the EU continue to elevate the European Union as a global leader in tech regulation? Oh, definitely, Naila. They are the global uh, leader now on uh, regulating AI, and that's so different from what we're seeing in the United States, uh, which, you know, Congress and the administration are uh, much more cautious not to challenge uh, and upset uh, tech giants in uh, Silicon uh, Valley. Instead, you see the U.S. has opted more for uh, a risk uh, management uh, approach in in addressing a AEI, but without uh, putting uh, you know in place any. Uh, legal uh, authorities. So what Saliha was talking about in terms of, um, uh, you know, biometrics uh, regulations, what AI uh, platforms can can get uh, when it comes to policing, uh, uh, used used by the police. I mean, excuse me, uh, or uh, when it comes to uh, uh, racial pro- profiling. These are all in the. Uh, EU uh, regulations, but you don't see them uh, in in the U.S. Instead, uh, the U.S. has invested in a more uh, non-regulatory uh, uh, infrastructure when it comes to AI. Uh, the concerning part is the lack of alignment between uh, U.S. and EU uh, means a big uh, challenge for the uh, tech companies and uh legal problems uh, eventually for uh, U.S. companies or others that uh, would be uh, in, in the EU. So unless we see more coordination on uh, on these terms, we are looking at more problems uh, down the road. Right. So, Leha, to Joyce's point, in the past when we've seen EU technology regulation that has effectively somehow changed and regulated some things in the U.S., would we expect to see the same thing with AI? So here in the U.S., there is a huge debate raging across the country, culturally, but also inside of Congress. Um, OpenAI's CEO, Sam Altman, who started ChatGPT, did go to Congress. He did make some pretty surprising claims and shocking claims about sort of the broader risks to humanity from uh, uh, generative AI and, and, and these kinds of systems. But so far, it doesn't look like there is any strong movement um, which is why the EU's um, first, you know, this legislation is really interesting because they are, again, leading the charge in setting standards for the rest of the world when it comes to a new technology. Jack, how are we expecting the big tech giants that are funneling millions of dollars into AI to respond to this? Well, Mark Zuckerberg is pretty busy with his budding jujitsu career, so we haven't heard anything out of Facebook and Meta just yet. But the rest of Silicon Valley is basically trying to prove they're not in a regulatory chokehold, so to speak. Uh, Just seven miles up the road from Facebook, Google has already responded. They're pushing back on a claim from Europe's top antitrust regulator uh, that their digital advertising tools violate antitrust issues. Uh, So, I mean, I think even as we're still seeing this this transatlantic split that that Joyce and Slada pointed to, uh, you see the politics kind of evolving in the United States. And you have to kind of begin to ask, especially with Kevin McCarthy now pushing uh, a bill to regulate 
AI and, and chat GPT. Is this kind of the beginning of some sort of trust busting movement? Uh, is it the beginning of the end of big tech's gilded age? Uh, of course, they're going to make the case they're not in a chokehold. They're not in a sleeper hold. Uh, but what did Zuckerberg say to the New York Times? I think aggressive grunting may sort of be uh, – they're pushing back on uh, very, very strongly on, uh, of course, these efforts. So I think you're going to begin to see a big dollars for dollars uh, lobbying and political fight here. As we're talking about AI, Sir Paul McCartney is embracing a widely debated use of AI in music, but he says the technology was used to extract John Lennon's voice from an old demo tape. McCartney didn't name the song, but it's likely to be a 1978 Lennon tune called Now and Then. The track will be released later this year as the final Beatles song. Jack, how far away from having ChatGPT write new Beatles songs, even though that wasn't the case here? So the first thing I actually thought was this has to be a response to quote unquote Bayflation, right? Uh, the the Europeans and, and the Swedes specifically blaming Beyonce's concert in Stockholm for actually raising inflation by 0.2 percentage points uh, in May. Uh, but seriously, I, I guess if this is what it takes for Hollywood and, and the music industry to be more creative, uh, you know, hot take, but I'm all for it. <laughs> Anyone else want to weigh in here, Saleha Joyce? I mean, if it's achieving a goal that John Lennon himself had in completing the song and, you know, John Lennon's wife and his writing partner, Paul McCartney, is uh, involved, then I definitely want to hear this song. Yeah, no, not not so much here. I think I'm good with, uh, you know, the old discs listening to uh, to uh, John Lennon or the, um, you know, it's at what point does it uh, does it stop and what will come next? Um so, yeah, I think I'm on the other side on this. <laughs> okay. Now, to a story that almost seems too good to be true, four children, including a baby, were rescued from the Colombian Amazon last Friday after surviving 40 days in the jungle. That's after their plane crashed, killing all the adults on board, including the children's mother. Saleha, this story has fascinated me all week. What more do we know about how these kids survived in the jungle for so long? Yeah, Nyla, I've also, I've been riveted by this story. So the kids were one, four, nine, and 13 years old. They were in that plane crash, like you said. Um, they were, uh, there were footprints and little crumbs and clues like a baby bottle and food that helped rescuers find them. Of course, it was still a huge mission to comb through something like 15 or 1600 miles of pretty dense forest. Um, the way you and I are seeing this story and it's making us feel hopeful, this operation was called Operation Hope. Um, what there's what one expert in Colombia said about how and why these four children were able to survive for 40 days in the jungle is that one, they themselves had hope. They wanted to live. They also said that the kids are indigenous, so their immune systems cooperated with the Amazon. And three, they know the jungle. They knew the terrain that they were dealing with. So when they came across fruit and different other types of food, like flour that they found in the plant wreckage, and then seeds as they were walking across the jungle, they knew what they could and couldn't eat. Do we know how the kids are doing now? All I've read so far, and of course, like I've said, I've been reading every snippet of news on this, is that they aren't speaking a lot. They are definitely weak, but in pretty good condition. They're going to be in the hospital for the rest of the month. 
Let's turn to news out of the UK. Former Prime Minister Boris Johnson left his role as a lawmaker in the British Parliament one week ago, and he didn't go quietly. Yesterday, an ethics investigation into his time as Prime Minister revealed Johnson lied and misled Parliament about parties he had during COVID, the COVID-19 lockdown in 2020. That investigation is being referred to many as Partygate. Johnson left Parliament before the report was released, but cited it as his reason for leaving. Joyce, what else do we know about this investigation? Well, basically, Naila, that he lied and kept lying and lied over and over uh, again. Uh, It's a very damning uh, report and a steep uh, downfall for uh, the former prime minister. Uh, The report itself is 106 pages, uh, according to the BBC. And uh, in it, the committee concluded uh, that uh, Johnson's personal uh, knowledge of the uh, of the uh, breaches to uh, Partygate refers to uh, parties during uh, the COVID uh, uh, lockdown. Uh, so Johnson had personal knowledge of that and lied about it. And uh, there were repeated uh, failures uh, uh, from him to proactively investigate them. Instead, he uh, deliberately uh, misled, and he uh, was a com- he was complicit in a campaign to. Intimidate those uh, uh, investigated, uh, investigating the, uh, the the gatherings. So um, uh, all in all, it's again a, a, a steep downfall for uh, for, Bor- for Boris Johnson. It's something that could impact uh, the upcoming uh, uh, UK uh, elections, and it's definitely something that we will see. You know, tarnish his uh, his legacy. Billionaire and former Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi died Monday at a hospital in Milan at age 86. The deeply divisive and controversy-ridden Berlusconi was a prime minister of Italy several times and a current senator. He was also a wealthy media mogul who shared a close friendship with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Some moves between China and the United States this week. The State Department said a phone call had taken place on Tuesday between Antony Blinken and China's foreign minister, Chin Gang. Uh, Saleha, what was the readout from that phone call with the State Department? What we heard from the State Department was that Blinken talked to Chin about the importance of keeping the lines of communication open, making sure that the two countries have a relationship uh, baseline level to avoid conflict, to avoid miscalculation. Uh, We also heard that Blinken is planning to travel to Beijing. Uh, He's rescheduled that trip uh, since the balloon incident from earlier this year that forced him to cancel the trip. And it's also supposed to be part of, you know, this phone call and the trip, if it happens, are all supposed to be part of President Joe Biden trying to restore some of the normalcy to a relationship between these two world superpowers. As we talk about the normalcy between these two, China's readout of the call was noticeably more pointed. Joyce, what did we hear from Beijing on this? Uh, Oh, yeah, it was different from uh, the U.S. Uh, readout was more uh, direct. Uh, it had some harsh words, and it, uh, it it just exposes the deep distrust between uh, Washington and Beijing since the uh, uh, balloon incident uh, for four months ago, when Blinken postponed his his trip. Then, so we know the Chinese foreign minister uh, told Blinken, according to the Chinese readout, that the U.S. should show respect uh, to China's core. Uh, 
core concerns uh, such as uh, the Taiwan issue and to stop interfering in China's internal uh, affairs. It also said that uh, the U.S. should stop undermining uh, China's uh, sovereignty, security, and uh, and uh, development interests in the name of competition. Uh, so it's it's definitely um, an escalatory uh, still uh, language from uh, the Chinese. This is also coming as uh, Secretary Austin uh, cannot reach his um, uh, Chinese uh, counterpart. Uh, so all in all, uh, the, I think China would welcome uh, Secretary Blinken uh, these uh, this weekend, uh, if the trip actually happens, uh, but both sides are really trying to manage expectations, uh, keep them very low at this point to uh, try to uh, overcome uh, the set of crisis between the two we saw in the last uh, uh, four months. So uh, it, it's going to be a very important uh, trip uh, to watch because it's also in both uh, the U.S. and China's interests to uh, to get to a good ground on uh, the relationship. Uh, U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan had good meetings in, in Europe with his counterpart, so hopefully this would build on that. Jack, Joyce and Saleha have talked about whether or not this trip may actually happen. It's still tentatively planned to go ahead. One visit that has happened today is Bill Gates has been in China. I don't know if we know very much about what he discussed with Xi Jinping and what we think is going to be on Antony Blinken's agenda. We don't know a ton about the Bill Gates visit. This was more under the Gates Foundation hat, uh, talking about cures to diseases like malaria. Uh, but potentially this is part of a Chinese approach to kind of split the playing field. And, and we saw last month the CEOs of Tesla, J.P. Morgan, and Starbucks heading out to Beijing. China trying to work the angle with the CEOs who want business as usual with China, while the Biden administration is looking at a little bit more tough talk, potential sanctions if, if China actually does indeed go for a full-scale invasion of Taiwan, uh, and decoupling economically with Biden's executive order on AI and quantum potentially coming down the road. Uh, with, with Blinken's visit, the, the message from the administration has been low expectations. They're starting all over again. And, and Dan Curtinbrink, Blinken's Asia point man, said this week, don't expect a breakthrough, but we just want to make sure someone else picks up a phone. The problem is uh, we've seen this movie before, right? And, and Xing Gong's statement, of course, which Joyce mentioned, uh, is really par for the course of the, admin of the relationship that China wants to set on their own terms, which means you're usually gonna, not really going to get a courtesy call before a balloon flies through your airspace. And so even if diplomatic relations with China are at a low point, U.S.-China trade is at a record level. Saleha, that also comes as critics of the Biden administration, including Republican lawmakers, have been very vocal about this trip, um, wanting it not to happen. How does that how do Republicans factor into this? Yeah, you know, what we're seeing from Republicans is that they want the current administration, the Biden administration, to be tough with China. They don't want uh, the White House sending Secretary of State Antony Blinken to mend fences when at the same time China is taking some pretty egregious actions, according to the Republicans, when it comes to uh, dipping their toe across the line with Taiwan and also some of the spy and uh, relationship with Cuba 
uh, as they try to kind of bigfoot um, the U.S. on a couple of different issues. Uh, there's also China's support for Russia in the war against Ukraine and the invasion there. And the U.S. has also banned advanced technology exports to China. So there's a lot to be said about the contentious nature. And you can't, the, what a lot of Republican lawmakers on both the House and the Senate side are saying that why make a trip across the ocean uh, when there are so many issues that you can't just hammer out in a friendly manner. We just got a question from Tony in Seattle that said, so often when I listen to read or watch news about China in the U.S. media, it seems as though the coverage has overtones of anti-Chinese bias. What can journalists and editors do to help get news content beyond the sometimes superficial characterizations that currently serve as the status quo? Joyce, you're actually about to launch a new newsletter from Al Monitor focusing on China. Can you tell us what that is? And I think that might be your response to Tony's question. Oh, yes. Thank you very much, Naila. We actually launched it on, on Thursday, and I think Tony should uh, should sign up going to our website uh, at Almonitor. Uh, so, no, for sure. I mean, while China is showing a more assertive uh, role, whether it's in the Middle East, whether it's, um, uh, it's elsewhere, the debate has to be more level-headed about what China is doing, uh, what are the deals, where are the red lines it's crossing when it comes to, uh, uh, you know, U.S. challenges. Challenging U.S. influence or commercial uh, rights, that would be a good conversation to be had. And that's something we're trying in uh, this uh, new China uh, newsletter focused on, on the Middle East. I mean, if you see just the guests that the lineup of guests in China this week, Jack mentioned uh, Bill Gates. Uh, we also have uh, Lionel Messi in, in China playing a game uh, was playing a friendly game against uh, Australia uh, yesterday. So uh, they're definitely trying to uh, to just be more assertive on, on the global stage. That's very much in the Middle East. They hosted uh, Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas uh, this week and offered to mediate in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It's not new. They've offered to mediate before, but we're definitely seeing more confidence, more uh, leadership in, in going out there in uh, uh, foreign policy and uh, conflict uh, resolution issues. Yeah, I want to get to Abbas's visit in just a second. But just back to that question and the point of journalism in China, we often hear from David Rennie from The Economist, who's often on the Roundup on Fridays from inside China. But Joyce, those voices of journalists inside China are becoming fewer uh, and fewer uh, as the Chinese government continues to make it difficult for Western journalists to operate in China, correct? Yes, of course. I mean, repression is is the name of the game in China. We're seeing it more in Hong Kong, uh, the crackdown on activists, on technology that that would that would allow uh, uh, freedom uh, freedom of speech. So that's definitely part uh, of the story. Uh, and on the Uyghur uh, issues, what we're we're seeing over there, that's being hardly. Uh, reported, uh, especially in in Middle Eastern uh, media. So, no, there is no... uh, you know any whitewashing of of that aspect of of China uh, while driving uh, the conversation on everything else that China is doing? 
Let's move now to news out of the Middle East, and let's start in Israel. Yesterday, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu faced an embarrassing defeat, and the Israeli opposition won a crucial vote. Jack, what happened? Netanyahu's really putting his neck out on the line over these judicial reforms that that many enemies of, of his administration say really would change the nature of Israeli democracy as we know it. Uh, and we've basically seen the two major opposition parties who basically – founded a, a coalition government that that dissolved and allowed Netanyahu to return to power, um, Neftali Bennett and Yair Lapid, now kind of allying and, and blocking uh, the talks from going forward over this judicial reform. Uh, Netanyahu also has problems within his own house. I mean, you see people from the Likud coalition breaking away from Netanyahu, rebelling. The images from the floor of the Knesset were, were sort of like a, a tie fist fight that you might see on YouTube in, in parliament, not something you'd see in Israeli politics. Uh, Netanyahu loyalists shouting down Bennett, uh, calling him a liar and, and a shame. Uh, so it really seems like we could be looking at the end of the Netanyahu administration as we know it. We saw unprecedented protests across Israel about these judicial reform proposed changes. What is, how does this move affect that? What's the latest with that? So I, I think this is, again, just going to throw Israel into more political turmoil. We've seen the president of Israel, Israel Herzog, or Isaac Herzog, rather, uh, who's more of a, a ceremonial figure, actually try and get Bennett, Lapid, and, and Netanyahu into a room to try and broker uh, this this deal. Uh, but these are really controversial and significant reforms because it would allow, allow the Knesset to overturn a Supreme Court ruling with a simple majority. So it's something that is extremely controversial and, and doesn't seem to be getting resolved soon unless uh, we see Netanyahu's government collapse, which appears to be something that's on the line now. Joyce, you mentioned Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas was visiting China this week. What can you tell us about how this plays into a Chinese strategy to increase its overall presence in the Middle East? Uh, yes, so this was an interesting visit, his first since uh, 2013. He received an honor uh, guard uh, reception. Uh, they treated it as a state-to-state uh, -state visit, and, uh, you know, President, Chinese President Xi mentioned Palestine by name several times. But uh, beyond that, beyond that symbolism, it's unclear what China can offer on the uh, Palestinian-Israeli track. As Jack uh, mentioned, you have a far-right government in, in Israel uh, that could collapse. And you have uh, Abbas, uh, Mahmoud Abbas himself, the Palestinian president, who is 80, uh, 86, correct me if he is 87, um, but he has is not allowing uh, elections uh, in the Palestinian territories. And uh, he is, uh, there is deep distrust in Abbas and the Palestinian Authority across the West Bank, we're seeing increasing signs of more militancy and more support for Abbas's uh, nemesis, Hamas. Uh, all are reasons to believe that we're nowhere, nowhere to uh, uh, push forward on the peace process between the Palestinian and the Israelis, whether it's China, Europe, or the U.S., or whoever wants to mediate that conflict. Joyce, I believe he's 87. Thanks for that. We just have a few minutes before we end here. And so I wanted to just ask quickly each of you what you're working on this week, what you're watching for in the coming week. Saleha? I'm watching the manufacturing sector in the U.S. to see if it is really coming back and what that means for the U.S. economy going forward. Jack? 
So this is kind of a quirky one, but I just got back from New Mexico on a reporting trip uh, to look at the Trinity nuclear site, uh, talk to local anti-nuclear activists. Uh, they have a new best friend. It's the Catholic Church. Uh, the local archbishop there, uh, John C. Wester, has become a, a major anti-nuclear activist, calling for the abolition of, of nuclear weapons, uh, following Pope Francis's example. And he's actually going to head to Hiroshima uh, in August uh, as part of an interfaith movement. So not something I expected to hear. <laughs> no. Interesting choice. Yeah, well, uh, I'm watching a meeting in France between uh, Macron and uh, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, uh, specifically on the issue of Lebanon and whether we see any consensus emerging by these foreign players on uh, the name of uh, the next president uh, in Lebanon, an endorsement from uh, the big uh, players that could uh, clear uh, the ongoing uh, the ongoing void and, and bring some relief to, to the country. That's Joyce Cottom. She's a senior news editor at All Monitor. Also with us today, Saleha Mosin is senior Washington correspondent at Bloomberg News and Jack Detch. Jack is national security reporter at Foreign Policy. Thank you all so much for joining us today. Let's end the round of this week with two unrelated but nonetheless fascinating news stories. The fossilized remains of a previously unknown species of dinosaur have been discovered on the Isle of Wight off the coast of the UK. The newly discovered Vectipelta Beretti dinosaur had, quote, blade-like spiked armor, but despite its fearsome appearance, it would have eaten only plants. That's according to researchers from the UK's Natural History Museum. The dinosaur is believed to have moved freely between Asia and Europe between 66 million and 145 million years ago. And our guest, Jack Detch, touched on this earlier in the show, but a question I never thought I'd ask. Did Beyonce keep inflation high in Sweden? Well, yes, but that's according to the chief economist of Danske Bank in neighboring Denmark. Tens of thousands from the global Bayhive swarmed to the capital Stockholm for two sold-out concerts in the country. Tickets were relatively cheaper than elsewhere, and a weak Swedish currency boosted their spending power. Accommodation in the city is limited, so folks turned to hotels and restaurants outside the city, where prices surged to meet demand. Monthly inflation in Sweden increased by 0.3 percentage points from April to May. And that'll do it for the roundup. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Chris Costano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior managing producer. Aileen Humphreys is the editor and producer of 1A On Demand. Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Nyla Boodoo from Axios Today. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capital One. With the Spark Cash Plus card, you earn unlimited 2% cash back on every purchase for your business. Find out more at CapitalOne.com slash Spark Cash Plus. Terms and conditions apply. Support for NPR and the following message come from Edward Jones. What is rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. Edward Jones Financial Advisors are people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Edward Jones, member SIPC. In any great story, there's a moment that sparks your curiosity. 
tells you there is more to uncover. How how did this happen? How did we get here? That's where Embedded comes in. We are NPR's home for documentary journalism. Immersive and intimate stories. I was stone-cold speechless. Nothing will ever, 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 ever be the same here. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts.